We're going to be in uh, John chapter 11 this morning, if you want to turn there now. And uh, on the back of your bulletin, you'll see there's, uh, there's an outline. And I'm an accountant, so I'm an outline guy. I'll follow that pretty carefully. So if you like outlines, that'll work. Um, a quick story about the origin of this sermon. About 40 years ago, uh, with the church I went to as a kid, they had what was called opening exercises. Probably a lot of you remember this. Probably some churches still do it. I don't know. But one of the things they do is they, if you knew a verse that you'd memorize, either in Awana or uh, Sunday school, whatever, you could stand up and recite it, uh, kind of show off the stuff you'd learn. Well, <clears throat> I thought I was pretty wise. And um, I, this wasn't even my idea. I stole this from another guy. But I would sometimes stand up and say, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, right? Aren't I clever? And I think that God was looking down on that. <clears throat> he has a sense of humor, as we know. And he said, okay, smart guy, in about 40 years, I'm going to have you preach a sermon on this text. (laughs) So little did I know then. Another thing that's interesting about the providence of God is, as you know, Matt just preached to Ruth, and the theme that he drew out of Ruth, the main theme was about suffering and trials. And that's what I'm going to draw out of this text today. Uh, And that was completely God doing that. I had this all worked out before he even started preaching on Ruth, and I knew that was going to be the theme, so it follows right along. So obviously, we really need to hear this message about suffering and trials and trusting in the Lord. Um, so this is, a long, this is a long text, verses uh, 1 through 44. I'm only going to read part of it. Um, this text could be used for a series of sermons. Lots of people have preached series of sermons on just this story. But I'm going to just focus on the one aspect of trials and suffering, God's sovereignty and trusting in the Lord in those times. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 17 through 35. And I'm going to get in the light so I can read this. <clears throat> now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then this is 17 through 35. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So it's pretty tough. Um, oh, and the three main points, as you can see in the, in the, uh, on the back of your bulletin, Jesus works in our suffering, Jesus knows our suffering, and Jesus redeems our suffering. All right, here we go. My voice is going to last. I know it. <clears throat> so it's pretty tough to get a group of people, even a small group like this, to agree on something. But part of our first point today is one that I think everybody here will agree on, and that is suffering is a universal experience. All people in all times and all places suffer in some way. Not everyone suffers equally. Some suffer much more than others. However, no one in our broken world is spared from it completely. And I'm sure there's some here today that are suffering in some way. We experience suffering in our own lives. We see suffering in the lives of those we love. And because we have instant access to news 24-7, we see suffering in the lives of people we've never even met before. We experience suffering, and we see a lot of suffering in the world, and it's hard to understand. This is why many critics of the Christian faith point to suffering as an argument against the biblical God. And we've all heard this before, right? The argument goes something like this. God can be either all good or all powerful, but he certainly can't be both. If he's all good but doesn't stop suffering because he can't, he's not all powerful. On the other hand, if he's all powerful and could stop suffering but he doesn't, he's not all good. And since our world is filled with so much suffering, the all good, all powerful God of the Bible can't exist. And the reason this argument is persuasive is because we all feel the weight of suffering, right? We've all wrestled with this question ourselves at some point in our lives. We've all at one point or another asked God, why do you allow suffering? And most of us have cried out in a more particular way, saying, God, why do you allow suffering to happen to me? The Bible's answer to this question is, just because we can't see a good reason for suffering doesn't mean there is one, isn't one. In fact, it's not only possible, but very likely, that the God that speaks things into existence is up to something in our suffering that we don't completely understand. And this story of Lazarus shows us that he redeems suffering for our good and his glory. And this is really tough for me, and probably most of you, to believe sometimes. But I often recite Deuteronomy 29, 29 to myself. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. And I try to think of it as God saying, I'm not going to give you all the answers, and that's okay because you can trust me. Matt told us a story about a man in his church in Indiana who had a great answer for this question. His response to the question of, how can you believe in a God that allows so much suffering was simply read the Bible. It's full of stories about people that suffered, but God still loved them. I love that answer. <clears throat> so suffering is universal, and all of us here have certainly experienced it, are currently experiencing it, or will definitely experience it in our lives. And in this story of Lazarus, we see a lot of human suffering, but we also see that God uses suffering for our good and his glory. So in this story, Jesus allows the people he loves to suffer to reveal his glory. The story begins with Martha and Mary sending word to Jesus about their brother Lazarus being sick. They've already seen Jesus perform miracles, and they believe that if he comes, he can heal Lazarus. And when Jesus hears about Lazarus, his condition, he says in verse 4, 
This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Lazarus did die, but he was only dead four days. And the four days is an important point that we'll get to later. So ultimately, the illness did not lead to death because Jesus raised him from the dead. And it's plainly stated in verse 4 why Jesus allowed these events to unfold for both the Father's glory and the Son's. Verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Notice how this is written. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, or therefore, because he loved them, he stayed two days longer instead of going immediately to where Lazarus was. So this seems odd. That is, because he loves them, he doesn't set out immediately to go to Lazarus so he can heal him, which is what Mary and Martha were hoping for when they sent for him. They had hoped that Jesus would come and heal their brother. Instead of going right away to where Lazarus was, he stays two days longer. He did this knowing that the people he loved would suffer longer, but through their suffering, they would experience the glory of God. Back to verse 4 again, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. A similar lesson is taught in the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples had the idea that the blindness couldn't exist except as a punishment. But Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is another example of suffering that Jesus used to show God's glory. This man had been blind his whole life. So he suffered his entire life until Jesus healed him. Why? Not because of his sin or his parents' sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The blind man didn't know how Jesus was going to use his lifelong suffering, or even if he would. And we often don't know how God will use our suffering either. It's important for all of us to remember when we're faced with suffering and trials that we often don't know what God is up to. So in this story, we see Martha, Mary, and Jesus' disciples not fully understanding what Jesus was doing in their suffering, just like we often can't see it when we're going through hard things in our life. Let's look at the disciples first. Um, A quick review of what happened before this story. Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem, and the Jews were putting Jesus on the spot, asking him if he's the Messiah. They don't like his answer. They try to stone him. They want to kill him, and then they try to arrest him, but he escapes. So now Jesus says to his disciples in verse 7, let's go to Judea again. His disciples respond in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? <clears throat> I can only imagine that most of them were, be, were thinking what I'd be thinking is, is he crazy? The Jews there try, tried to stone him and arrest him, and he wants to go back, and he wants us to go with him. Also notice how they answer. Jesus says, let's, or let us, go to Judea again. They respond with, and are you going there again? I think this was their subtle way of, of trying to get out of the return trip. And Jesus responds with a proverb in verses 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And it sounds a bit odd to us, but they would have understand this proverb's simple meaning, and that is we must work the works of him who sent me while it's time. Or another way to say it would be, I must follow God's will. If that means going someplace dangerous, then so be it. Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. 
Now, it seems silly to us to take this literally, as why would Jesus and the disciples need to risk possible death in order to wake Lazarus from a literal sleep? But his disciples respond in verse 12, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. So Jesus clears up this confusion in verses 14 and 15. He says, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And like before, the disciples probably don't know what to think. And I'm sure they were used to that feeling by now being with Jesus a lot. But they decide to go back with him. Notice what Thomas says in verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this this reaction is what we would expect from doubting Thomas. This is the same guy that didn't believe Jesus was resurrected until he touched his wounds. He's a cynic and a pessimist. My wife will back me up on this when I say that I often react like Thomas. I thought I'd get an amen on that. No? Okay. Uh, I can relate to what he says here in verse 16. Notice he doesn't say he won't go. He just doesn't want to because he believes that they're going to be killed if they go back to Judea. He knows that trusting Jesus is the right thing, but he believes it will end in the worst possible way. And I have to admit, I'm often like that when things get hard. I often have a pessimistic, cynical outlook on where God is leading me when I'm suffering. There's a reluctant obedience we see here in Thomas, and just like him, I often obey reluctantly, usually because I can't see or understand what God is up to. I have the head faith, but I lack the deeper heart faith. The point to see here is Thomas, nor the other disciples, know what Jesus is up to here. They're certain that they're walking into suffering and trials and don't understand how or even if Jesus is going to redeem the situation. Now let's look at Martha and Mary. As we read before, the sisters sent for Jesus, letting him know that their brother Lazarus was ill. They knew that Jesus could perform miracles, as he already had performed several, including healing the blind man we talked about earlier. And they had faith that if Jesus came to see Lazarus, he could make him well again. Both sisters come to Jesus with the same reaction, Martha in verse 21 and Mary in verse 32. They say the same thing to him. They say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They both believe that Jesus could could have kept Lazarus from dying if he'd gotten there before he died. But neither of them are thinking that Jesus had allowed Lazarus to die so they could experience God's glory. In the moment... Martha and Mary are not able to see how God is using the death of their brother for their good and their and his glory. They're suffering because they've lost someone they love, and they're unable to see past that suffering, just as we are often unable to see past ours. Martha and Mary don't know that Jesus is about to redeem their suffering by raising their brother from the dead. So just as the disciples, Martha and Mary, didn't know what Jesus was up to in their suffering, Again, we often don't know how he's working in our suffering, especially when we're walking through it. It's good to remind ourselves that we grow more in our faith during difficult times than we do in easier times. Comfort has a way of making our faith grow stale. But suffering does the opposite. It drives us to God's word and prayer as we search for strength and wisdom to get through our suffering. Another thing this story teaches us is even though we may not always understand why God allows suffering, we're reminded that Jesus knows our suffering. So how does Jesus know our suffering? How does he know what it's like to be us? So it's time for a little theology. I promise it won't be too long. I know when I say that, some of you are like, yes, theology. 
And other people say, mm, do we have to? But trust me, this, this, is, this is easy. This won't be hard. Now, if Matt gets up here and tells you that he's going to be talking about theology, you better buckle up. But. <laughs> so one of the central doctrines of our faith is the hypostatic union. And it's a fancy term that means Jesus was 100% man, but also 100% God at the same time. Now, as, as an accountant, I can tell you that in the, in the accounting world, this kind of thing is going to get you into a lot of trouble. This doesn't work, right? <laughs> but, but some people have tried it, though, and yeah. <laughs> but this is one of the truths revealed in Scripture that we can't fully understand. We can kind of sense a beauty in the mystery, but we can't fully grasp it. Calvin wrote in his confessions that he experiences these truths more than he understands them. It's helpful for me to think of it that way, that I experience them more than I understand them. So why is this doctrine important, that Jesus was both fully man and fully God? Well, it's important for understanding the story, and it's also important for understanding the gospel. God has revealed to us that sin is so serious that blood must be shed in order to pay the debt incurred by sin. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Then a few verses later in Hebrews 10.4, it's written, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, in order to fully satisfy the debt incurred by sin, a perfect sacrifice needed to be offered once and for all. The blood of bulls and goats aren't going to get it done, which is why the sacrifices under the old covenant need to be offered over and over again. So God provided a perfect sacrifice in the man of Jesus. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because Jesus was born of a woman, he was born under the law just like us. And because Jesus lived a sinless life, he was the only man to ever uphold the law perfectly. And so he became the only perfect sacrifice that could satisfy our sin debt. <laughs> Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice it doesn't say he had to be made like his brothers in some respects or most respects, but every respect. So as we go back to the story, a quick summary of that. Because Jesus was fully man, he was born under and therefore subject to the law of God, just like us. Because Jesus was fully God, he was able to live the perfect life the law requires and therefore become the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. Because he was fully man, he can relate to our temptations and our suffering. And as fully God, he became the perfect high priest, interceding to the Father on our behalf. So now if we go back to our passage, we can look first at the deity of Jesus that we find in the text, and then also at his humanity. So let's start in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, Martha doesn't understand that when Jesus says to her, Your brother will rise again, he meant that day. 
She thinks he's referring to the future resurrection on the last day. And Martha probably knew what the scriptures said about the eventual resurrection of the body from uh, passages like Job 19 and Daniel 12, and also likely from Jesus' own teaching about the last day. John records several of these in his gospel. Consider Jesus' response in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say he knows how to achieve the resurrection, and he doesn't give a list of things someone needs to do to receive the resurrection. He says he is the resurrection. It's a pretty crazy claim to make about yourself. And Jesus made several I am claims in his teaching, perhaps the most incredible of which is from John 8:58, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. When he said this, the Jews tried to kill him because they knew this was a way of Jesus claiming to be God. They knew what was written in Exodus 3.14 when God, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. By saying before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is making a clear reference to what God said to Moses in Exodus. This is why the Jews tried to stone him after he said it. Because by saying that, he was claiming to be God. And though Martha believes Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, she still does not fully understand his claim, I am the resurrection. If we jump ahead to verse 39, Jesus said to her, Take away the stone. And Martha answered him and said, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. She's probably thinking to herself, Why would he want to do that? Who wants to look at and smell a body that's been dead for four days? She still doesn't realize what Jesus is going to do with that dead body. And it's significant that it's been four days since Lazarus died. Jesus is recorded as raising two others from the dead. And in the Old Testament, God uses both Elijah and Elisha to bring dead people back to life. There are accounts of people in history who were clinically dead for minutes or on rare occasions even hours that have come back to life. But nowhere else in recorded history, either in the Bible or anywhere else, is there a record of someone that was dead for four days being brought back to life. And that's because after four days, as Martha states in verse 39, there will be an odor. After four days, a human body is in the process of decomposing, and there's no doubt that they are dead and not coming back. Jesus says to Martha in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus prays and then commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And he walks out, still wrapped in the linen strips and cloth he was buried in. Who else but God can take a corpse that's been dead four days and starting to smell and breathe life back into it, commanding that dead body to regenerate dead tissue and walk out of the tomb? So we clearly see the deity of Jesus when he said, I am the resurrection, and then demonstrates that by raising Lazarus from the dead after four days. We also see the humanity of Jesus in this story. And we see that as a man, Jesus experienced suffering like we do. So we go back to the verse 35 again, the one that I used to get up and recite in opening exercises, Jesus wept. So a couple of things to think about as we think about this verse. First, Jesus loved Lazarus as a friend. We see a, a hint of this in the use of the Greek word for love, philio. Is that right, Matt? Is that how you say that? Oh, that's pretty good. In verse 3, <clears throat> So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Philio is the Greek word used here for love, and it means love of a friend. So Jesus loved Lazarus with a brotherly love, like the love we have for a close friend. 
And the second thing to think about is Jesus knew what was coming next, right? He already told the disciples and Martha that Lazarus would rise again. He knew he was about to redeem the suffering of those he loved. So he knew before any of this happened that Lazarus was going to die. He would also be alive again very soon. That even though Jesus knew he was about to redeem this situation for the people he loved, and that his friend would soon be alive again, he's troubled and weeping. Jesus wept in his humanity because he was a man, but not a regular man. He was a man without sin. And because he didn't have sin in him, he experienced the suffering of those he loved in a way we would if we were without sin. That is perfectly loving others and weeping with them without thinking of ourselves at all. And we've all experienced the suffering of those we love, right? Even though the suffering they're going through sometimes isn't something that directly affects us. One example of this is if someone who's we love has lost a friend or a family member that we've never met. They're grieving and it makes us sad to see them suffering the loss. We won't miss the person that's died because we never knew them. But we see the person we love suffering and so we suffer with them because it breaks our hearts to see them in pain. Sometimes we experience this even with people we've never met before. We see something terrible on the news that shows people suffering, people we've never met and likely never will meet, but our hearts are still moved by their suffering. So if we, with our selfish, sinful, inward-pointed hearts, experience the suffering of others, even those we've never met, how much deeper would Jesus, fully God and also fully man, experience the suffering of those he loved? As a man without sin, he would love and care for them perfectly. So here Jesus weeps as a man whose friend has died and as a man experiencing the suffering of people he loves, even though he knows he's about to redeem their suffering. This is the verse we read earlier from Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And it's good for us to remember, no matter how much we suffer, Jesus suffered far more to pay our sin debt. It's a debt we could never satisfy on our own. He was willing to become a man and suffer a humiliating and excruciating death in our place so that we could become adopted children of God. And that's the gospel, right? And that's why it's good news. We're not saved by our works, but by faith in the work that Jesus did on our behalf. So Jesus works in our suffering. He knows our suffering. And finally, he redeems our suffering. And he redeems our suffering in our lives now. One of the most difficult things about suffering is that we often can't see any purpose in it, right? When we're hurting, it's easy to ask God, what good could you possibly bring from this suffering? We need to remember that God does redeem suffering in our lives now, in this broken world. In the story of Lazarus, there's almost an immediate redemption of suffering. One minute a family and community are mourning the loss of someone they love, and the next minute he's alive again. Now, it's easy to think, well, it's easy to see the redemption in this story, right? But my suffering has never been redeemed like that. And that's probably true. It's much more likely that the suffering and trials in our lives are redeemed in more subtle ways than having a loved one brought back to life. So let's look at a few ways that our suffering is redeemed in our lives now. Here's some verses that teach us how God can and does redeem suffering and trials in our lives now. This is James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James isn't saying here that when things get tough, we put on a fake smile and say things like, I'm just praising the Lord. He's saying that God uses trials and suffering to strengthen our faith. It doesn't mean we'll love the suffering itself. We won't. But we should find joy in the fact that God is sovereign and that he has a purpose for it. And one of those purposes is to build up our faith and make us steadfast in it. Here's another, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Paul writes here that we should rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because it produces endurance, character, and hope, and through sufferings we experience the love of God through His Spirit. And notice that both James and Paul don't write that sometimes trials and suffering produce these things. It reads as if it's always true. The testing of your faith does this. Suffering produces this. One more. Psalm 119, 67, and then verse 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This is verse 71. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So here the psalmist is saying that he drifted away from God, but his afflictions or his, or his suffering brought him back and caused him to learn God's word and obey it. So the Bible teaches us that God uses suffering and trials to increase our faith, produce endurance, character, and hope, experience the love of God through his spirit, and learn the value of his word. And if I need more of these things, which I do, then I should be prepared for suffering and trials when they come and be thankful for God's work in my suffering. I know, it's easier said than done. I came across these two great quotes while working on the sermon. This is from John Calvin. The fire of affliction reveals the quality of our faith. And then this one from Charles Spurgeon. Trials bring us to God, and we are happier, for nearness to God is happiness. That one, I'm going to read that one again. Trials bring us to God, and we are happier... For nearness to God is happiness. You can tell which of those guys is the theologian and which is the preacher, right? <laughs> recently, recently, when I'm going through something difficult, I try to ask myself this question. If the only thing that comes from this trial or the suffering that I'm, is that I'm forced to trust less in me and more in God, isn't that enough? We need to remind ourselves that there is no better thing than to be nearer to God, just like Spurgeon said and that we need to trust that God will work all things together for good for those who love him. So God redeems our suffering now, but the best part is the final point, is that he'll redeem all suffering in the future. So in this story of Lazarus, we see hints of the future when Jesus will come again and renew all things. Let's think again about the claim that he makes in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will point the way to the resurrection, or even I will bring the resurrection, but I am the resurrection. And just prior to Jesus making this claim, in verse 24, Martha said about her brother, I know that he will rise again on the last day. I mentioned this earlier, but it's likely that Martha knew about the last day from Jesus' own teaching. He's recorded as using this term several times in John's gospel prior to this story. And the last day that he's referring to is when he will come again and redeem all things. 
There are a lot of promises recorded in Scripture about the second coming of Jesus and the future hope we have as Christians. Here's just a few. This is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you will be also. What a comforting promise that is, right? That Jesus is preparing a place in his Father's house and promises that he'll be there with us. Here's another. This is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The Greek word that's translated here, new world, is palagenesia. It can also mean regeneration or renewal. So another way that this is sometimes translated is at the renewal of all things. And I love that idea of Jesus renewing this broken world. And then finally, this amazing promise from Revelation that Robin actually read last week. This is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. So here's a question that convicts me. Do I live like I believe Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection, especially when I experience suffering and trials? Do I live as if these promises are actually true? So here's an illustration that I heard years ago, and it's really stuck with me. Imagine two workers in a room, and their job is to snap a widget onto a wadget. So I use widgets because when I was in accounting school quite a few years ago, they always made widgets and all the f- examples in the book. It was you're producing widgets, selling widgets. So that's why I always use widgets. So two workers in a room and their job is to snap a widget onto a wadget for 12 hours a day, seven days a week. They both get paid minimum wage. They receive zero benefits and are only allowed a few breaks throughout their 12-hour shifts to use the bathroom and eat just enough to keep them going. The room has no windows. It's painted a drab and dreary gray. And they're not allowed to speak to each other or have any music or other distractions for the entire day. Sounds great, doesn't it? So worker number one has no hope of getting out of this job. <clears throat> he knows that it's very likely he will die someday in this room, clutching widgets and wadgets as he takes his last breath. Worker two, on the other hand, has a contract with the company they work for that promises him a massive bonus at the end of one year of $10 million. All he has to do is the widget wadget thing for 365 days, and he walks away free and rich. Worker two obviously has better union representation than worker number one, right? (laughs) So which of these workers will come to work each day with a positive, hopeful attitude? One or two. This is an easy answer, right? And it's also easy to see the application to us as Christians. When things get tough for me, I too often act like my situation is that of worker one rather than worker two, when the reality of our situation as Christians is much more like that of worker two. In fact, Jesus has promised to renew all things, redeem all suffering, 
and bring us into a new world is a far greater promise than an early retirement package worth $10 million. So as we close, here's three practical things that we can take from this story. So number one, we need to remember that often we don't know what God is doing in our lives. We don't know what he's up to. God can and will use our suffering for our good and his glory. We need to trust he's sovereign, that he's good, and that he loves us. The Bible teaches us over and over that he's a God that redeems suffering and trials. Number two, we need to remember that Jesus wept. He knows our suffering. He became like us in every, every respect and lived a sinless life. His life included suffering like the kind we all experience, but on the cross he suffered far more than we can imagine. We have a Savior that loved us so much, he became a man and suffered like us, more than us, so he could save us. And number three, we need to live in such a way that reflects the future hope promised to us by Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection. This claim is a promise of not just resurrection, but the future renewal and redemption of all pain and suffering. When Jesus returns, and makes all things new. As Christians, our lives should reflect this hope, not only when things are going well, but even more so when we face suffering and trials. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you're a God that redeems our suffering. Help us to trust in your sovereignty, especially during times when we can't understand what good can come from our circumstances. We're thankful that Jesus became a man, lived a perfect life, and died for our sins. And we're thankful for his promise to come again and renew all things. May we live lives that reflect this future hope you have promised us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.